With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be continuing our top 25 players in NBA history series. We just knocked out numbers 25 through 21 in part one. Go check that out if you haven't already. Today we're going to be doing numbers 20 through 16. But before we get into that, Logan, why don't you just quickly break down the criteria that you're using for this list? Uh, in this order, my, my most valuable thing that I considered was team success. Simply put, did your team win when you were on the floor? Were they successful when you played? Uh, the next thing I valued were uh, if players climbed the mountain or not. Were you the best player on a championship team or a team that got to the NBA Finals? Next, I valued two-way impact. Uh, I just want guys who are great on both ends of the floor. And then peak and then longevity. Obviously, longevity can outweigh peak, but I'm going to value peak more if uh, they're similar in terms of length. So those, that's my criteria in that order. So we definitely have some similarity there. I think the fundamental thing being how much is your skill set contributing to championship value? Winning basketball is the most important thing for me. And that's not just straight up looking at wins and losses necessarily because context matters and all these things supporting cast there's other ways to measure impact on team success too like on off numbers how do they perform with and without you all of that comes together i really value playoff production because it is just the more important stage to me than the regular season where it really matters if your skill set translates at the highest level like you i really value people who got over the hump as the guy won a title but we're not just counting rings here because context is important. Did you do it as the guy at your apex? What did the supporting cast look like? All of those things certainly inform how much I value a championship. Accolades, I think, serve as an estimate, but because there is voter error involved there, agendas and narratives and things that I just disagree with, I don't value it all that much. We're not just stacking up resumes, accolade to accolade here. And like you, I value peak more than longevity, but if the peaks are comparable, then how long you sustained that peak certainly does matter. So real quick, Logan, why don't you remind us of who you had 25 through 21? 
At 25, I had John Havlicek. At 24, I had Jason Kidd. 23, I had Giannis Antetokounmpo. 22, I had Kawhi Leonard. And at 21, I had Moses Malone. Okay, I had number 25, Dwayne Wade, 24, Carl Malone, 23, Charles Barkley, 22, Chris Paul, and 21, Moses Malone. With that, who do you have in your 20 spot? Well, Carson, I anticipate you having this gentleman much higher if you also have Giannis Antetokounmpo much higher. And uh, I have Nikola Jogic at my 20 spot. And it's basically just because he's in his playing career. Jokic, unlike a few guys that are above him, Jokic has climbed the mountain as the best player on a championship team already, and that's super valuable. A couple guys above him uh, that we're going to get into in this episode can't say that they've done that. But again, they have the longevity edge. Jokic is still in his playing career, still has room to grow. And, you know... That was what was really hard for me to balance with Jokic, Carson, is, I mean, he's already accomplished, like Giannis, the most difficult feat in all of basketball. So where do you rank him? And Jokic's skill set, we talked about this all during the playoffs, but, I mean, his skill set really amplifies his teammates the way, I think, more than any other superstar in NBA history. Jokic is an all-time great passer, all-time great anticipator, just sees the floor so well, and he really is an unstoppable scorer, uh, as well. He's already a two-time MVP. He got his ring. He was the finals MVP. Granted, uh, I think this is a great championship team around him. Without Jokic, they simply just don't go. Um, it's tough, man, because when you look at the most valuable skill sets in NBA and how he has raised his team to being a great offense with him on the floor, I think he raises it more than almost anybody in NBA history. He just hasn't done it for long enough yet for me to put him in the top 15, the top 20 range. I just need to see him do it for a few more seasons, but Jokic has one of the most valuable skill sets of all time. It is translated to the playoffs every single year. He is super versatile, and you can use him in so many different ways offensively, off ball, on ball, as a screener, as an initiator, as a pick-and-roll ball handler, as a pick-and-roll roll man, just giving it to him on the low block and letting him go to work. Uh, there's not a hole in Jokic's game offensively. So the only limiting factors and why he isn't higher on my list is uh, his two-way impact, he is not a great all-time defender. I think that if you are a uh, good to great defender, I'm just going to value that a little more. But he really is one of the special offensive engines of all time, and that's an edge he has over almost anybody in NBA history. And I don't think that's hyperbolic, but I need to see him do it for a little while longer before I move him up on my board. I totally understand that, but this is a spot where I really do value peak over longevity, especially when we're, when we're talking about truly historically rare talents. And I think Jokic might be the greatest offensive player ever. I do believe he is one of the four greatest offensive players ever. And I think that this run that we just saw from him, when you're looking at this level of exertion, scoring dominance, and also playmaking brilliance, really only LeBron has comparable playoff runs and 1991 Michael Jordan. It is that all-time special. I think there is no better scorer in the league today. He proved that in this playoff run to me with his ability to get to his spots no matter what, and the fact that he is the greatest touch shot maker in the paint that we've ever seen, his versatility as well, brilliance as a jump shooter, being the best tip-in scorer in the league. He's impossible to take away. It's one of the great scoring runs that we've ever seen the first time anybody's averaged 30 points per game on 63% true shooting in a title run. 
and his all-around versatility, man. He's a 95th percentile post-up scorer. Clearly, to me, the best in the league there with his combination of power and his variety of counters, his brilliance with fakes, the fact that he can kill you with 67% efficiency on turnarounds or 69% efficiency on hook shots, right? He's just unstoppable down there. Then he's a 90th percentile roll man, has that unstoppable floater game where he's 67% or can kill you as a 52% mid-range shooter, a 38% three-point shooter, 73rd percentile cutter, uniquely skilled as an off-ball mover as a big, also a guy who you can bring curly around screens and can kill you as a jump shooter there. 85th percentile spot-up player is rare off-ball uh, scoring and spacing value for a big. And we know what he can do at times running inverted pick and roll, which is an incredibly rare skill set that is going to just automatically create mismatches and he can make every pass there as well and is more than capable enough as a ball handler to not make mistakes. So that blend of incredible scoring skill and physical dominance at that size just creates something that you can't take away, right? Kevin Durant, we can see become overly reliant on his pull-up jump shooting, and that can fail him a bit, even though he's one of the greatest scorers that we've ever seen. Even Steph Curry, right? He cannot dominate the painted area nearly like Nikola Jokic can, and that is the most valuable area to dominate in a playoff setting, especially when you pair it with brilliant jump shooting and historically great playmaking. And he's all around just one of the most efficient volume scorers ever. He led the league in true shooting percentage this year. That is so rare to be a 25-point-per-game scorer and the most efficient in the entire league. Normally, it goes to just bigs who are catching a bunch of looks in the dunker spots. Tyson Chandler's and Mitchell Robinson's and Rudy Gobert's. It's insane to do that with Jokic's shot diet. And in his career, his true shooting percentage is almost 7% above league average. That is among the all-time most efficient players on this list. And then you have the fact that his scoring is at least rivaled and probably surpassed by his passing brilliance. He can make every pass in the book. These insane skip passes to the corner if he's getting doubled on a post-up. And it's so hard to take away those angles for him because of his height. And he's incredibly accurate. His velocity is elite. His touch and placement is basically perfect. In terms of finding cutters out of the post, I think he is the best that we've ever seen. His rhythm in terms of give and go and whatnot, it's just the timing and the placement is always perfect. He's brilliant in transition if it's as an outlet passer or as a ball handler there. He's just legitimately in the conversation for the greatest offensive player that we've ever seen. And he is an all-time playoff performer. His playoff career over five runs. He puts up 27.5 points per game. That's sixth all-time. Over 12 boards a game and over 7 assists a game on plus 4.8% true shooting versus league average. And this year, 30, 13.5, 9.5 on 63% true shooting. I think it legitimately may be the greatest offensive run ever when you consider that he went up against formidable defensive bigs in three of those four series and absolutely ate everybody alive as both a scorer and playmaker. And his floor game to game was as high as we've ever seen from anybody offensively. His impact on team success is also in the absolute top tier of all time because he is just maybe the greatest offensive engine that we've ever seen in terms of just peak these last few years that we've seen from him at this level. He's been the best player on seven straight top six offenses, and I think that 
although he wasn't at that superstar level in the 2017-2018 range, he was already a brilliant offensive player because of his scoring variety and his playmaking. Like, first year that he really got a uptick in minutes, he carries them from being the number 17 offense the year before to the number four offense. But of course, it's really about these last few seasons. Still, over the last seven years, he has improved his team offenses by 10.5 points per 100 possessions. Maintained that over a seven-year span. That difference, 10.5 points per 100 possessions, is bigger than that between the number one offense and the dead last offense in the league this year. His career on off is plus 10.6. That's how much he's improving his team overall per 100 possessions. That is almost identical to LeBron, who's at 10.8. It is ahead of Chris Paul, Dirk, Duncan, Kobe. Only trails out of the all-time greats this century, or out of any player this century. It's only the all-time greats who are up this high. LeBron, Steph, and KG. And I think it's important to emphasize that, yes, of course, he had to have a a strong supporting cast to win a title, as pretty much every player in NBA history has. But he was churning out teams that were outperforming their talent level so dramatically. 2022, no Jamal Murray, nine games of Michael Porter Jr. They played with a point differential that was equivalent to a 62-win team when Jokic was on the floor. A better point differential than Giannis's Bucks that season. And his playoff resume, the only two times that he's had, like, capable rosters, right? When you consider the Jamal Murray injuries. And although we've only seen him really twice on the playoff stage at this point with the kind of rosters that have contending potential, and even in the bubble, that wasn't a title caliber team, he has absolutely delivered individually. Those teams have done very well, and they did win the title this year. And I expect him to continue to keep them in these conversations year in, year out. I'm not projecting that. That doesn't affect this list. I think what he has already done is significant enough. This was one of the 10 best playoff runs ever this year. I believe that this three-year peak that he is on, where he easily could be three-time MVP, is one of probably the three highest offensive three-year peaks that we have ever seen. And when I compare him to the other guys who are in this 16 to 20 range, like versus Dirk Nowitzki, right? I respect Dirk's longevity so much but there is just no comparison peak to peak. And when both of them have climbed the mountain now, but one of them did it in far more impressive fashion, Jokic is, I think, the more all-around effective scorer because of just his brute force in combination with that level of skill. They're close there, but then the playmaking gap is massive. The rebounding gap is significant. And Jokic, to me, is a better defender when you consider how much of a monster he is on the defensive glass, how great his hands are, his IQ there. And that's not to say that I think he's a significant plus, but I think that he is actually better than Dirk there as well. So all of those things coming together, I can't deny this sort of tier one offensive greatness. And even compared to some of like the great offensive engines versus a Steve Nash, who I had to just barely leave off this list. The gap is that Nash may create such high quality shots for everybody and he may score so efficiently himself. He cannot do what Jokic does where any night if he wants to, he can walk into 10 to 15 high quality shots for himself in the paint right? Like that level of direct imposition, being the best scorer in the world while being the best passer in the world is so, so rare. Only him and LeBron have ever held that title to me simultaneously. The reasons I can't have him higher though, and by the way, I have him at number 16, is because I do not think his defensive impact is in the upper echelons and longevity, right? He has been a 
top five sort of player for five years. He has been arguably the best player in the world for three. I have felt that for the majority of that time he's held that title. I gave it to Giannis for a little bit. I believe he has been the best player in the world for the majority of the last three seasons in a historically loaded period. And so I just can't deny that kind of peak with also a game that is translated so perfectly offensively across stages. You just cannot take him away. He really is perfect there. And that is so rare. And what that can do, propelling teams to elite heights just consistently, it's invaluable. The one thing I disagree with, Carson, is that you think that Dirk and him don't compare at all. Uh, really? When... I agree with you in the aspect of what you're talking about in terms of valuable skill set. When you're looking at just pure skill set, I think you're right. I think there are very few players in NBA history that can that easily, solely by themselves, lead to great team offenses. I think he's in a tier of his own with LeBron, with that version of MJ, with like the Magics and the Larrys of the world. You know what I mean? But in terms of consistent churning out great offenses at the top of the NBA, consistently leading to team success on really one end of the floor. I mean, I think Dirk has done almost just as much. Like, he was so consistently near the top of the NBA for five or for a decade, turning out some of the league's best offenses, being one of the league's best offensive players. I get that Dirk's skill set, he doesn't have the passing of a Jokic. He doesn't have the unstoppable interior scoring of a Jokic. I agree with you on the skill set point. But in terms of production and uh, consistent winning, I mean, I do think Dirk compares. And because of that longevity edge, I do have Dirk. Uh, a little bit higher than Jokic right now. Um, I, I agree with you on the skill set point. I don't disagree about that. But in terms of what he did in a very tough era of basketball, consistently turning out great offenses that won, uh, I do think it is a legit comparison. I mean, dude, Dirk, uh, over that, I was saving this for a little bit later, but I mean, uh, from t 2001 to 2011, the Mavs never won less than 50 of those uh, 50 games. Six of those seasons, they had 57 or more wins. He turns out four number one offenses. He turns out four more top five offenses every single year. They are a top uh, ten offense. And you look at the on-off numbers. Uh, on average, through that stretch, 2001 to 2012, the Mavs are 9.8 points per 100 possessions better on average with Dirk on the floor. And, and again, I get it. I don't think it compares to Jokic's on-off numbers, right? It's it's a difference between with Jokic a 62-win team and an 18-win team. With Dirk, it's like a 65 and a 28-win team, right? His teams are a little bit better, and he doesn't uh, change their apex as much. But Dirk did it for you know legit 11, 12 seasons. They were always a great offense. Again, four number one offenses, and they were consistently in the 55 to 60 win range, like. I don't know, man. I, I really do value that consistent success in a very tough era of basketball where he's turning out number one offenses, man. Okay. Well, first thing I want to say is that three of those four number one offenses came with Steve Nash, who is another historically great offensive player, right? That's quite the luxury. Even though he wasn't at his Phoenix apex, he was still phenomenal. I also agree. I mean, Dirk is a really, really good offensive engine. In his entire career, he turned out eight top six offenses as the guy. In eight years, Nikola Jokic has already turned out seven. And they are consistently, like, the gap between when he is on the court, they're just pretty much inevitably, like, at least a 
a 95th percentile offense. And when he's off the court, they're just not that good. Like, it's not that Dirk wasn't a really good offensive engine. It's that he wasn't simultaneously the best and a uniquely versatile scoring big man on the planet while also being the best playmaker. It's nothing against Dirk. It is a matter of Jokic just having ascended to a different level. And I really think it's hard to argue that Dirk did anything meaningfully better than Jokic, while Jokic has some glaringly obvious advantages. Wow. I think so, dude. So you're saying that if Jokic retired today, you would have him above Dirk? 100%. And that's how I have to wow. look at this. I I just couldn't view it in any other way. That Dirk could not have done what Jokic did this year, not at this level, like of game-to-game -game scoring and playmaking and rebounding utter dominance with efficiency that's even up a level from what Dirk had it's just unconscious and it really is unrivaled from any big man that we've ever seen in NBA history I think Jokic's peak is for sure higher I think his skill set is more valuable but this is where the longevity factored in for me the fact that Dirk has already done it and did it for you know 12 straight seasons where he consistently had the Mavs as one of the best teams in the league and so this is where I think uh, I value the longevity a little bit more just because Jokic is in his playing career. I agree with you. I think his peak is far above Dirk's, and I think that if Jokic continues ascending at this level, I mean, if he gets another ring, I'll go ahead and I'll do it. You know, I will put him above Dirk, but mm -hmm. I want to see him do it one more time. I want to see him do it for a few more seasons. This is where the longevity aspect kind of factors in a little bit for me, but this does surprise me, man. I expected you to have Dirk a little bit higher. Well, and that's fair. I think I'm going to be uniquely high on Jokic here. But legitimately, when you're talking about a dude who was in the conversation for the greatest offensive player who's already climbed the mountain, I think that he belongs there. Minor There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game-changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. 
If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Number 20 is another active guy, though, and that is Giannis Antetokounmpo, who you had at 23 last episode. He is one of the great dominant two-way forces that we have ever seen. You shared some of the numbers last show, but... He has led the league in makes inside five feet for five of the last six years. Healthy Zion is the only exception there. So he's a historically great rim attacking force. This year, he made more field goals inside five feet than Peak Shaq at 71% efficiency. With his athleticism and his rebounding ability, he is an all-time great transition force and, of course, is a really gifted ball handler and playmaker for a seven-footer. He doesn't move like any seven footer that we've ever seen. I mean, even when you think about like David Robinson or Dirk levels of agility, Giannis is obviously in a different class. Even KD, he's a totally superior athlete. Since 2019, he's averaged 29, 12, and six on plus 5.6% true shooting. He has four top three MVP finishes in the last five years, and he's propelled a couple of top five offenses while being up there for one of the handful of best defenders in the league. Extremely versatile, historically great off-ball when you consider his ability to disrupt passing lanes, to be an elite secondary rim protector, one of the great defensive playmakers of this era, and he is a key foundation of three top five defenses in the last five years. Of course, he's sort of inseparable with Brook Lopez there when you're looking at the team result, but he has been dominant defensively consistently. And that sort of unique two-way value has made him a dominant regular season win machine. The Bucks have won 73% of their games with him since 2019. And although he's had good supporting casts, like they're okay without him, but they only win 49% of their games. So that's a big difference. And his career plus 6.6 on off number is strong, although not as astronomically great as like Nikola Jokic, where offense falls apart without him is the best in the league with him. He has an all-time finals performance in 2021, and this is what I said last episode in terms of why I have him so high. How many players in NBA history have been far and away the best defensive and best offensive player in a final series? There are very, very few. So that sort of peak that he's sustained for these last five years is enough to get him into my top 20. The reason that I have Nikola Jokic four spots higher than him, even though they have both won the two MVPs, They have both had these great playoff runs, although I do believe Jokic's was better in totality, is that I think Giannis still has a more glaring weakness, which has been exposed on several occasions in the playoff stage. So whereas Jokic's offense has been infallible, we have seen great team defenses stifle Giannis's athletic advantages a bit and expose his lack of high-level skill. 2019 versus the Raptors, he's under 23 points per game on under 52% true shooting, over four turnovers per game. That team that had a lot of big athletic wing defenders and quote-unquote built the wall against him, he really struggled to attack. 2020 versus the Heat, under 22 points per game on 55% true shooting in a pretty embarrassing upset. And then this year, yes, there was the back injury, but he looked pretty good out there athletically, and he's under 23 points per game on 53% true shooting. And again, it was the lack of skill, his inability to get quality looks out of the post, his inability to score efficiently because he couldn't athletically overwhelm Bam Adebayo, and then his complete ineptitude as a free throw shooter. Those 
weaknesses keep him from being a historically great offensive player. He is one of the best in the game today, but there is just a different level of completeness that a lot of the guys on this list can reach. And of course, Giannis is a good playmaker, but he is not in the uh, elite echelon there either. So I just think, although he has the one great run, it was a favorable path and they didn't face anybody who had the sort of defensive personnel to really give him fits. And of course, I think he's improved a ton versus 2019 and 2020, which is why I certainly value the greatness of his 2021 peak. And even what he did in 2022, the efficiency wasn't good against Boston, but the brute force as a scorer in terms of volume and the playmaking in that series was really good. And he brought the Bucks so close to winning that series without Chris Middleton against a more talented team. I value those more, but when we see this year, some of those same weaknesses come back again, there's just more flaws here. So the peak is very, very high, but I do consider Jokic the better player because I think Jokic is a far, far and away better offensive engine. And that to me surpasses the gap in two-way value. And Jokic has consistently played better in the playoffs than the regular season. Whereas Giannis has generally been a better regular season player than playoff performer, even though he's been great on both stages. So I have him top 20. I have him higher than you, but I do have him lower than the other active dominant force that is Nikola Jokic. And I think that is the right distinction to make. Jokic is so overwhelmingly dominant and unstoppable on offense that it just outweighs Giannis's two-way impact. And we've seen, like you said, how it directly correlates to playoff success. Nobody's been able to stop Jokic. Nobody's been able to stifle him. In late-game moments, you know, Giannis looks kind of like he looks a little scared, and they build a wall up against him in Miami, and they're able to shut him down a little bit. Uh did you consider Giannis uh, any higher than this? Like, I mean, his peak is pretty high and probably higher than some of the other guys. Yeah, I mean, I think his peak is higher than 20th all time. But because of some of those black marks and flaws that we've seen, there were guys where I thought, well, the consistency with which you are elevating teams and the totality of the greatness for a decade plus, like a Dirk Nowitzki, slightly outweighs the fact that I do think Giannis still has a clearly higher peak. I hear you on that. And uh, it's Giannis is unique in that, man, that he has those holes in this game, but he's been so dominant. Uh, I think that I think that we'll see Giannis uh, maybe, uh, again, climb the mountain. I think he's got a very good chance at it. And I think, again, I think that's what would propel him to top 15 on my list. Everybody in this range uh, is pretty close. But if Jokic or Giannis gets one more, I think that would be enough. Because I'm pretty concrete on my top 15. Another chip for either of those two gentlemen. And I think it would propel them uh, into the next level uh, of my list. I also do think it's worth noting, like, the consistency with which they have churned out elite teams that have won like in the playoffs, they've both already been the best guy on teams that have won eight playoff series. And like Jokic, I understand 21 and 22, they only win one between those two years, but they're turning out top five playoff offenses with laughable talent, backcourts of Compazzo and Rivers and Monte Morris and Will Barton and Jokic is putting up you know his 30 12 and 6 with absolutely elite efficiency and so I just think with retrospect I understand there are people who held that against him that never made any sense and it still makes no sense and Giannis although he's had his blemishes right 
I mean, that's a lot of playoff success still compared to even all-time great players. Like, you compare him to a Moses Malone, who we had at 21. Moses, there's only a few years where he wins a playoff series as the best guy. And of course, there's a couple of memorable runs there, but it is really valuable to consistently be at that level of propelling team success. And Giannis and Jokic are historically rare in that respect. For sure. Another guy who is a big part of uh, a team winning and a lot of playoff success uh, is Elgin Baylor, and I have him at number 19 on my list. He was really hard to rank for me, Carson. He was uniquely difficult because he doesn't get the ring, because he played alongside Jerry West, but I can't overlook what he did and all of his accomplishments. Granted, he never gets a ring. He never gets a final MVP. That's what's held against him. I mean, he was super successful. Ten times he selected to the All-NBA first team. He's an 11-time All-Star. For three seasons, he averages over 30 points per game. He still holds the record for most points in a finals game in NBA history, the record for the second most points in a playoff game in NBA history. He's third in career points per game. He's a four-time league leader in playoff points per game, four straight seasons. He's over 30 a night in the playoffs, and it's not unlike, you know, three games like Gilbert Arenas in 06. Elgin's going deep. He's going like 10, you know, 8 to 12 games. And he's getting buckets consistently. He's a part of two number one offenses and two number two offenses. He's an all-time great rebounder. He's 10th in career rebounds per game. And for his peak, which is basically the entirety of his career, granted, he misses some time uh, as he's older. He also misses some time, I believe, when he's in the military, splitting time with playing basketball. He's at 27, 13, and 4, which is remarkably great numbers. And He's a great finisher through contact. He's a crazy athlete, one of the you know great first uh, above-the-rim scorers. He's a good jump shooter, uh, a tough one, too. He's shooting turnarounds and pull-ups and actually shooting jump shots uh, when a lot of guys of this era are shooting set shots. Uh, what keeps him from being higher on my list? Well, it is the fact that he wasn't the number one guy on his team, and he just didn't get it done, and I have to hold that against him. The guy in my number 18 spot is very similar in the fact that he didn't have a ton of playoff success as the guy. He never got a ring as the guy. He had to wait till another superstar came over and could help him out, Was but was more of a uniquely great offensive engine by himself. But Elgin's an all-time great scorer, an all-time great rebounder, and one of the great players of that era. It just sucks that he doesn't get that ring a part of a great team, and he can't say that he climbed the mountain in any of those single seasons, but it's sustained, it's sustained success for a decade. It is elite scoring for a decade, elite rebounding for a decade, and he is, you know, one of the five best players in all of basketball for that era. So, you know, it's not going to completely remove him from my list, but it is going to knock him from climbing into my top 15 when all of those guys, I feel like, reached a, a level as arguably the best player in all of basketball for a period of time. I love Elgin so much. He is not on my list. And wow. probably, wow. I mentioned David Robinson. I mentioned John Havlicek. Those two and Elgin were certainly my three toughest cuts. He was on my list for so long because I think he's such a basketball pioneer in terms of being the first truly great aerial athlete. And you mentioned his finishing. He was so inventive there, so incredibly adaptable midair, so elite at finding angles, hitting reverses. He had a variety of runners in the lane and had some of the craziest hang time 
that we've seen and was just so far ahead of his peers there. So he could avoid contests because of just how long he was in the air. Great body control, spinning and navigating traffic, high level quickness, and he was strong too. And then you consider the fact that he could put on a jump shooting clinic and he had turnarounds and hooks out of the post. He had incredible variety as a shot maker and he was a strong ball handler. So he was a scoring machine and had an all-time scoring peak. Like 1960 to 63 playoffs, his averages combined are 36, 15, and 4 on plus 4.5% true shooting versus average. Of course, scoring numbers in today's NBA are inflated, right? They're even more inflated from the 60s because pace was so absurdly high that teams are scoring 120 points per game and they're averaging over 120 possessions a game. But still, like that Elgin is outscoring playoff Wilt and is doing it more efficiently and has a couple trips to the finals. The problem to me, number one, is that 1964, he has his first major knee injury and he just never reaches those heights again. His efficiency and his production take a hit. And yes, he is still churning out first team All-NBA selections and he's still really good, but the league is so much smaller. First team All-NBA isn't as valuable as it would be today. I also think... You mentioned phenomenal rebounder, one of the best inference that we've ever seen. And he is an underrated, like really high level playmaker, especially in how spectacular and dazzling he was. He used that aerial ability as a great improvisational passer out of the air. And he could dissect doubles and deliver these quick drop-offs. He had really good vision and deceptiveness, no looks and over the head passes. And in transition, because of his elite rebounding and athleticism, he was really good there too. Heads up, a really, really uh, special all-around offensive player. But, again, not at that same peak after the first five years of his career. Really four, because his rookie season he was very good, but not as good as he would be by the 1960 season. He's not having a high-level defensive impact within the scope of this list. He was athletic, so he was a good defensive playmaker, but not a, an all-around great defender. And I think there are legitimate questions about how his overall winning impact scales when we're talking about this level of all-time greatness. Like, how far could he carry a team? Because... Although he was a good playmaker and he was a spectacular scorer, he was pretty much an average efficiency score, which as we know for the all-time greats is really quite bad. Most guys are far above league average. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the post-injury years, Elgin just couldn't be as efficient anymore. I also think it's worth noting that the two years before Jerry West came into town, yeah, he didn't have good supporting cast and he got them to the finals in his rookie year. But it wasn't a good team, and getting to the finals didn't mean as much then as it does now just because of the sheer amount of teams you had to go through. They're 58-89 and 89 in the regular season with Elgin before Jerry. They are number four of eight teams in offensive rating, and then they're dead last. Like, it's just rare for a great offensive player, regardless of surrounding personnel, to struggle that much in terms of propelling a team offense. Elgin is on eight finals teams in his career, but 1965, they make it without him in that playoff run. They're still a finals team. By 1969-1970, those teams are driven by Jerry West and Wilt. He's sub-20 points per game in the playoffs. He's nowhere near his apex because of injuries and aging. And I think that this was really the nail in the coffin for me, Logan. Elgin won 54.4% of his career games. The Lakers, without Elgin, through 1971, won 54% of their games that's not including the fact that elgin retires and that's when they go on to have 
their best team. Like if we included the 1972 season, you know, that number would jump way up in terms of winning percentage. And even before adding Wilt, the Lakers won 48% of their games without Elgin. So I think he's such a spectacular ahead of his time offensive player in terms of blending athleticism and skill and playmaking. But efficiency limitations, lack of high level two-way impact just throughout the scope of NBA history, if you're missing a couple of those key ingredients, you're probably not going to drive winning at the highest level. I think that applies to him. Of course, there's team success, but he's the second best player on a majority of those teams because I just think Jerry West far surpassed him when you're looking at the 1964 and on range. And then again, by the Wilt teams, he's the third best player. So I love Elgin, but I just don't think that as the guy, he drove winning as much as even a Charles Barkley kind of guy who I have uh, in my 23 spot. So was Kawhi or Elgin a debate for you? And like, who would you would put over the other player? Well, it wasn't a debate I had to think about too much because I ended up deciding that they were both in like my first five off. I think I would lean mm-hmm. Elgin though, even though I believe Kawhi's peak is higher. That championship is more valuable. It's what we've talked about. Kawhi's peak starts in 2017. Since then, he's finished two seasons. Like, it's just, we've seen so little of it in the scope of things. But I think Kawhi's peak is is better. I mean, Elgin, I think the other thing that kept him from being higher on my list definitely was the two-way impact, too. But, I mean, I don't know, ten times you're one of the five best players in basketball. You're one of the best scorers in basketball. Granted, he's not at his highest peak. Um I had to reward the all-time historic scoring numbers that still stand to this day. Uh, it's hard getting buckets like that, and I was going to reward that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Elgin's a number one. I think that's a very good point, too, about driving winning and being a legit number one, because I do think when Jerry comes along, and I rewarded that. Jerry is very high on my list, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that matters. But I don't think it's enough to completely take him off of my list. That being said, though, Elgin and Havlicek are the – Odd men out on the entirety of my list. The guys who are supporting pieces the way that every other player on my list isn't. You know, they are number twos and number threes comparative to other guys who are definitive number one. So they do stick out a little bit. I love Elgin, so I will not try to diminish his case anymore. And I really do love watching him. Like, he is such a fun, spectacular player. And I mean, I do still believe the cliche take that Elgin Baylor is underrated because in terms of who do we talk about, he doesn't come up nearly enough. But looking at all-time lists, I think the raw scoring numbers and his association with those Lakers teams and maybe just some of the overall inflation that we see from the pace of that era can lead to him being a bit higher than I would have him. At my number 19, I have a guy who we've talked about already today, and that is Dirk Nowitzki whose biggest strength by far is that he is an all-time scorer. From 2002 to 2011, averages 24.5 points per game on plus 5.1% true shooting versus league average. Fantastic. And phenomenal versatility. Like, it's just, you could turn to Dirk and he was going to be an elite isolation scorer. He was going to be an elite post-up scorer. He was going to be an elite spot-up weapon and floor spacer because he is the greatest shooting big ever. Shout out Jokic. I think that he's close. I still think that Dirk is a little bit better there. 
And the volume with which Dirk was doing it as a jump shooter also is worth noting. He was also, though, a really effective driver, which is part of why he was so effective in those isolations and post-ups. And I think totally underrated in terms of his physicality, right? Chicken wings, backing dudes down effectively. He was a physical post player who blended that with this all-time sort of skill and balance, had great body control. And also, for most of his career, was too quick for most bigs. Obviously, we saw Dirk well past his prime because he played so damn long, but there's a reason that they started the dude as a wing, right? Like, he was totally ahead of his time in terms of ball handling and skill at that size and quickness. And so that also, that handle was really important in terms of his effectiveness initiating from the perimeter. And then he got even better in the playoffs, 2001 through 2012. On that stage, he's 26 points per game on plus 5.2% true shooting. And I think another indicator of his underrated physicality, he eats up almost nine free throws a game for a decade plus in the playoffs, which is a really elite mark that will help your efficiency. Of course, you have the fact that he's an incredible mid-range shooter, 47% from 10 to 16 feet and from 16 feet to the three-point line. The ability to fade and turn over either shoulder, the up and under is a very effective counter. Just his absurd shot making against contests, right? With very little airspace at his height with his release point. He was just pretty much unstoppable there, which made him such a great post hub. And the three-point shooting, 38% on high volume for that time, especially for a big, just is constantly improving the shot quality for others because of his spacing value and an open Dirk 3 is always going to be a great, highly efficient shot. So I think his scoring volume undersells his scoring value, even though the volume is still really good because of his versatility and efficiency and how unique that kind of spacing from a big was at that time in terms of what it did for the offensive ease of those around him. You mentioned how consistent he was as a floor raiser. It is wildly impressive. He led the Mavs to 11 straight 50-plus win seasons. They were, for a decade, a 57-win team on average with Dirk on the floor. His on-off number, also excellent, plus 9. That is better than Tim Duncan. That is better than KD. That is better than Kobe Bryant, some of these other greats of the 21st century. Propelled 8 top 5 offenses, as you mentioned, and although most of those came, most of the absolute best came when he was paired with Nash 06 and 07 he leads back-to-back top two offenses with Josh Howard and Jason Terry as his co-stars and those are 60 plus win teams like that sort of peak value from Dirk is rare no I don't believe it's at Jokic level but it is rare and then you have legendary consistency and longevity he averaged 17 plus points per games 17 times Averaged almost 22 points per game at 35 years old and averaged 20 plus in the playoffs at 36 and 37. Man, like that level of skill just aged like fine wine. And that's why even 2011, like that's not Apex Dirk. He reached a super high level for that playoff run, but that's four or five years removed from Apex Dirk, but he could still get there because of that post brilliance and that jump shooting skill. I think... Dirk sort of has this fascinating duality with his postseason resume where some people say, oh my God, he's one of the best clutch performers ever because of 2011 overcoming a super team without another real star on his team. Although I do think the 2011 Mavs roster top to bottom, like 
certainly more complete than the 2011 Heat, right? That team had almost no good role players. It was just star power at the top. But, of course, that's a great run from Dirk. But then there's the people who uh, maybe value his reputation before that year, which is that he was a quote-unquote choker. 2007 first round, he sucked. He was under 20 points per game on 38% from the field. 2006 finals, he wasn't good, and the Mavs were viewed as the superior team to the Heat. He goes under 23 points per game on 39% from the field and very famously misses a free throw to tie Game 3 with just a couple seconds left. I do not believe that that choker reputation is accurate. I also don't think he's like one of the all-time greatest playoff performers, but he generally elevated his scoring volume and maintained his efficiency and had some really good runs and was consistently the best guy on teams that were winning in the playoffs. So that is really impressive. And then the 2011 run, he's 28 points per game on plus 6.8% true shooting. It's a phenomenal playoff scoring run. Weaknesses for Dirk. Although he is an all-time great scorer, his offensive value is coming rather singularly from his scoring given that he's not a super strong playmaker, capable there. Now, as we talked about, because of the variety of his scoring, I think that made him a better offensive engine than like a Carl Malone, for example. But he still can't reach the upper echelons of the guys who blend great scoring and playmaking, in my opinion. And then you have just the fact that he's a meh defender, solid positionally, good length and size, good, not great rebounder, limited in terms of his vertical athleticism, all those things. He's just pretty forgettable on that end of the floor. So I think that that's why the absolute ceiling for him is lower than some of these other guys, like versus Giannis, right? When Giannis is at his absolute best, that sort of dominant scoring, playmaking, defensive combination, I don't think that Dirk can quite reach. But the consistency of his scoring and offensive value, making the Mavs a great team with the fact that he did climb the mountain in that historic fashion, it is special stuff with historically great longevity. And so I think Dirk's resume really holds up. It's really impressive. And uh, he's got to be in the top 20. Yeah, I've got Dirk a few spots higher at 17. I'll go ahead and spoil that. Um, And it's for a lot of the reasons that you laid out. I mean, he was an unstoppable scorer. I think when I went back and watched tape on all these guys, Dirk was the one who I felt like I really underrated historically all time Mm. because I associate that 2011 run with, oh, you know, that's the best version of Dirk. No, you go back five seasons and you watch him from 2004 to 2007, and my jaw dropped. It's it's really incredible watching a seven-footer move with the grace that Dirk moves Mm -hmm. with and handles the ball. Like, that's what blew my mind is I'm watching Dirk break out of behind the back and then drive to the lane and just make it look easy. Like, I didn't know Dirk could move like that. Um, and then you mentioned that uh, how great Dirk was truly at attacking mismatches, too. That's one of my favorite things, is you don't watch Dirk take many... No look. Well, one, first off, no look is a bad look for Dirk. Because he's seven feet mm-hmm. tall, he can basically just rise and fire over anybody of that era. But you give him a screen or something, boom, you get a smaller guard on him, and it's just that much easier, either fading over either shoulder or just pulling up in somebody's mouth. He was a great pull-up jump shooter, too. Like, you see him sometimes in transition, just catch it, boom, rise and fire, and he's hitting it. Um, So I was really surprised with Dirk in how I underrated his handle, his athleticism in his prime, and just how much of a complete offensive player Dirk really was. I do Mm -hmm. think a big reason why he can't be higher on my list 
is the limited defensive impact. Like I said, I want guys who are great two-way. Dirk was never that great of a defensive player. He was good, but not great. Um, I do really value Carson, though, how he was able to elevate pretty Mavericks teams into being great consistently, regardless of the pieces around him. Obviously, he reached great heights with Steve Nash on his team, but regardless of surrounding talent, those Mavericks teams were always great, and I really do value that. So longevity is a key factor here for me too, but I don't want to undersell what he was in his prime. One of the great uh, offensive scorers of all time, and just unstoppable. Unstoppable is a great word. You couldn't slow him down because he had it all from all three levels. So Dirk, I have at 17. Uh, The two-way value keeps him a little lower. The absolute peak and ceiling that he could reach keeps him a little lower, but I was really surprised. I thought I was going to have Dirk a lot lower coming into this, Carson. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, Dirk is just great, dude. I mean, he's one of the most spectacular scorers that we've ever seen. We're going to take a quick break to talk about Factor. With the busy fall season just around the corner, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. I know that this is definitely very relatable for me. Tons of days where we're grinding on nerd sesh content. Then I got to go to the gym, get huge. Next thing I know, I'm back home at 730. Like the last thing I want to do in the world is cook. So the opportunity to have something that's healthy, that's delicious, that's easy, that's affordable is a pretty great deal. And that's what Factor provides. They've got a wide variety of options too, not just dinner. We're talking lunch as well. We're talking some snack options, breakfast items, Logan. I know you would love this bacon and cheddar egg bites, potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet. They've got some nice clean juices that you can try. And you're also making a sustainable choice factor offsets 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. So check out factor. You can head to factormeals.com slash nerd50 and use code nerd50 to get 50% off. That's code nerd50 at factormeals.com slash nerd50 to get 50% off. Who do you have at 18? 18 was a tough guy to rank, and I definitely played him higher than Dirk. At 18, I have Oscar Robertson, and he was a very tough player for me to rank. He led six number one offenses. Uh in his career. Uh, this is obviously before Kareem too. This is Oscar by himself as the guy. He is a six-time assist champ. He's 26, 8, and 10 for his career. But the limiting factor for me with Big O was two-way impact. And then when you look at terms of his peak without Kareem, because he gets a championship later in his career. And for the longest time when I was a kid and I first got into basketball, One of my takes uh, in basketball was that Oscar was one of the most underrated guys ever because he was a triple-double machine. He had such well-rounded impact. He led these great offenses, and he had a championship. But that was until I realized that he didn't get his ring until Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came around, and that was what really limited Oscar from being higher on my list. At his peak, as the sole guy, his peak was 55 wins in one conference finals appearance. He never got over that hump by himself, and I held that against him in a pretty primitive era of basketball when there isn't a lot of talent around the league. Big O never got to a 
title by himself, never reached that apex. You know, Dirk had a great team around him in 2011, but he did climb the mountain as the superstar in a very, very tough West, you know, going through a very tough path. Oscar didn't do that. And so while I think he could solely take offenses to higher peaks than a Dirk Nowitzki could because of his passing ability, because of his scoring ability, because of that well-rounded offensive impact, he never did it by himself. And that is something that, again, Dirk with a great supporting cast did in 2011. And Oscar's peak isn't that long. It's about nine seasons when other guys are spanning over a decade plus. Uh, So I really appreciate how great Oscar was and what he could do solely to a offense. But he was never the guy on a championship winning team and never got over that hump. Again, peak is 55 wins in a conference finals appearance. Dirk consistently let out better teams. He climbed the mountain by himself and churned out top offenses as well without having that two-way impact too that Oscar also doesn't have. So Oscar was very tough for me to rank, Carson. You look at the counting numbers. You look at how great he was as an offensive player and all these offenses that he led to being the best in the league. But I did hold against him that he wasn't the guy on a championship winning team, and that's what limits him from being higher on my list. Same in common with uh, a guy who is number 16 on my list. So Oscar slots in at 18. I thought he was going to be much higher on my list as well. He's one of the tougher guys to rank. So I have Oscar at 17, but I actually thought I was going to have him at 18 for a time, so it's pretty slim margins. I just think what we can't undersell here is that this is truly a historically great offensive engine. And I think if we're talking about the greatest offensive players ever, he's got to be top eight. Like Jokic is in that tier one. If we're naming the guys who are above Oscar all time, it's maybe LeBron, MJ, Larry, Magic. I think Jokic at his peak. I think Steph. And then some people might argue Shaq or Kareem, right? Those all-time great scoring bigs. But Oscar has to be firmly in that conversation. In his Cincinnati years, he averaged 29, 8.5, and and 10 on plus 8.4% true shooting versus league average. And in the playoffs, completely held up to those numbers, better than almost 30 points per game, over nine boards and nine assists on plus 8% true shooting versus league average. He was a dominant scorer, like a rim pressurer who ate up free throws, but was lethal from mid-range, a great pull-up shooter of that era, and also a guy who, as a bigger, uh, stronger, more athletic guard, did a good amount of work with his back to the basket, and he could shoot over people there. So just an all-around, insanely efficient volume scorer. Led the league in true shooting percentage as a rookie, Logan. As a rookie, and as a guard in 1960, this is when most of the great perimeter players of this era are like struggling to shoot 40%, right? Oscar is up towards 50% from the field while eating up free throws, which made him more efficient. And he led the playoffs in true shooting percentage three times. Then you have elite all-time playmaking, a seven-time assist leader, phenomenal anticipation, could see tons of angles as that bigger guard, was putting constant pressure on defenses with his scoring, which opened up so much, and a weapon in transition. So the result of this is that he led five straight number one offenses upon entering the league. The team that he joined had been the worst in the league the year before. They were a 19-win team. He makes them the number one offense for five straight years, led another three top two offenses in Cincinnati, and then contributed, of course, Kareem is the star, but Oscar was vitally important, 
to another three top two offenses in Milwaukee. So that's 11 top two offenses over his career. And yes, of course, it's a smaller league, but the five straight number one is an unbelievable accomplishment. And when I talk about that peak that Jokic has, that LeBron have, of being simultaneously the best scorer and playmaker alive, I don't think that Oscar can quite ever claim that he was the best scorer, but I think he was clearly a top three scorer and undeniably the best playmaker. And he was at that level for almost a decade and then still a very good player contributing to title teams. I also think what's so tough about the lack of a title or a great team uh, before he went to uh, Milwaukee is that his teams just sucked, right? First of all, he's making them the best in the league offensively. That's the side of the ball that he's responsible for, okay? Sure, he was a fine perimeter defender. He was nothing special, but a perimeter defender cannot drive a great team defense alone, and especially not in that era when taking away the rim was by far the most important, and the Royals just sucked defensively. They also won 54% of their games with him versus 24% of the games that he missed in that decade. They were awful without Oscar because that offense that was the best in the league all of a sudden was absolutely irrelevant. And you also just have to look at the fact that he loses in a couple of Eastern Conference Finals to Boston. If it's not Boston, five out of the six years, I think, of his playoff runs in Cincinnati, he lost to either Russell or Wilt. Like, that's just tough, man. Those guys are not just top 10 players of all time. They always had better teams around them than what Oscar did. So overall, because he didn't climb the mountain as the guy, I still don't have him in that top 15 range but a rarely great offensive engine who's both all-time as a scorer and a playmaker. I do agree that some people overvalue his title with the Bucs a bit, but I think people also undervalue how remarkable what he was doing to elevate such bad teams in Cincinnati for the better part of a decade was. So, because he's not great two-way, because he didn't do it as the guy, I don't have him higher than this, but boy, is he one of the greatest offensive players we've ever seen. So I'm sorry, Carson, did we leapfrog over your number 18 guy? I'll do my number 18 guy right now because I think it's the guy who you sort of hinted you have at number 16, and that is Julius Irving, who is tough to rank first and foremost because we have the question of what to do with the ABA years. Because there, Dr. J is a three-time scoring champ, he's a three-time MVP, and he's a two-time ABA champion. He averages 29, 12, and 5 at the same time, of course, That league was not of the caliber of the NBA. Uh, There were some really high top-end talents, but the overall depth of talent was not comparable still. That being said, I do think that it has to matter some. That he was clearly a top-two player in the world for a half-decade, even if it wasn't in the NBA, right? There was nobody in either league who you would have taken besides Kareem over Dr. J. And, as I've mentioned before, that 1976 ABA title... I think really matters because of how good the Nuggets team that he beat was. David Thompson, Dan Issel, Bobby Jones. Like, those are NBA stars. That team walks into the NBA the next year, actually with probably even a slightly weaker roster because they lost Ralph Simpson, who was one of their better offensive players on this team. And that's a 50-win NBA team. So, like, that's clearly better than the Suns team that actually made the 1976 NBA Finals that won 42 games, and then the next year, they just sucked. So, 
it's tough because you can't just draw an equivalency and no NBA Finals is going to be the same sort of matchup difficulty. So we can't give him like an NBA ring for that. But I think it matters beating a team of that caliber with, I mean, a less talented roster than what Denver had. Then he comes into the NBA and before Moses gets to Philly, he leads them to average 55 wins over six years. He is still five-time first-team All-NBA, two-time second-team. He's the best player on three NBA finalists before Moses gets there, and he is the 1980 MVP. I do think it's worth noting, though, with all this great team success, he's not as singularly responsible for it as some of the other guys. First of all, those Philly teams were often elite because they were better defensively than offensively. You credit stalwarts like Bobby Jones, who ends up going to Philly, Mo Cheeks, Caldwell Jones there more than you do Dr. J. They were also good before he got there. They won 46 games the season before Dr. J joined the team. And overall, from 77 to 87, they won over 60% of their games in which Dr. J didn't play. So, like, they were just a good basketball team. But Dr. J was clearly the best player, and he was the only elite offensive weapon on multiple NBA finalists, three of them, which is a rarity in NBA history, especially when he's losing five of his peak years in terms of contending in the NBA because he's in the ABA. His game held up very well in the playoffs, 77-82. He averaged 24.7.5 boards, 4.5 assists per game on plus 3% true shooting versus average. And his offensive value is tremendous. He's an elite scorer, a basically unstoppable rim pressure for that time when you consider the combination of handle, agility, quickness, and of course, being one of the great aerial athletes ever, especially at his size. I also think he's an underrated playmaker, really good in transition, uh, did a good job of collapsing the defense and then making the read out of those situations, sort of like what we talk about with Elgin Baylor, right? Weaponizing the athleticism to create playmaking opportunities. And his longevity and consistency is legitimately good. Of course, he was immediately dominant in the ABA. Then he comes into the NBA, a dominant force, and still was dropping 18 points per game on good teams when he retired at 36 years old. So it's a very impressive resume. The weaknesses are that, as I mentioned, he wasn't an automatic elite offense like an Oscar Robertson, like Dirk Nowitzki was a better offensive engine to me. They just had a top eight offense, four of his six NBA years before Moses, but they weren't very often elite. And one year that they made the finals, they were 13th of 22 teams in offensive rating. So it was driven by the team defense. So he was a good offensive engine. He wasn't one of the all-time greats there though. And then defensively, right, he's one of the great defensive playmakers because of his athleticism and his tendency to gamble a bit there. 3.7 career stocks per game is outstanding. And he's a strong positional rebounder, but just his overall effort level and engagement play to play kept him from being a great defender. It wasn't the highest priority for Dr. J consistently. So overall, I cannot deny the consistency with which he put forth pretty elite offensive impact and led great teams. And when you consider the ABA years, he spent a decade as a top three player alive. But I also think there are certain players out there who had more complete offensive impact or more pronounced two-way impacts to where there's just more singular dominance there. I really do think that Dr. J played on some really good basketball teams where he was the best player, but the teams were really good. And by the way, we talked about this with Moses, but like 
I don't know if we even emphasize enough that before Moses got to Philly, they were a 60 win team and they'd made two of the last three finals, right? So I think that that matters when we're talking about his legacy too, the totality of the strength of the team. But I do love Dr. J and I do think that he belongs in the top 20. Yeah, Dr. J is number 16 on my list, and you're right. He's uniquely hard to rank because of his career in the ABA. 30-11-5 with two steals per game, two blocks per game. He put the Virginia Squires on the map, and then he went up to the New York Nets and uh, balled out for a little bit too. His NBA peak is still very high too, 23-7-4 consistently. Again, like you mentioned, 1.9 steals per game and 1.6 blocks per game, and it was super fun going back and looking through this because, as you mentioned, I didn't realize how dominant the Sixers were before Moses either. Four 50-win teams, two 60-win teams before Moses comes along, and they lose in the finals to the Lakers. They lose in the Eastern Conference finals to the Celtics in 81, and then in 80, they lose to the finals and uh, to the Lakers uh, again. So he is leading. Uh, he is the best player on uh two championship teams and another team that gets to the Eastern Conference Finals, and I think that's super valuable, especially because I think he's one of the greatest athletes that the game has ever seen. When you talk about verticality, uh, combined with his wingspan, too, it just allowed him to finish over anybody in jam, too. But like you mentioned, one of the greatest aerial artists ever in the fact that he could change what he was doing uh, in midair with such ease because of how big his hands were, could double clutch and go back up with the same hand, could go and turn around with the other hand and finish. Uh, we, of course, always remember the uh, around-the-world layup in the finals where he takes it under the backboard and finishes. I mean, Dr. J is one of the best athletes ever, one of the greatest uh, finishers of all time and defensive collapsers and had just insane, insane bounce. And I, I think you're underrating his two-way value too, man. I just think the fact that you can do that night to night, basically almost get two blocks per game and two steals per game. I get what you're saying about engagement level. Maybe not like an all-time clamper, but I think that's a super valuable skill set too. So why he's so high up was, again, one of the three best players in basketball for a decade, has pretty elite two-way value, and was an unstoppable scorer at his peak too. I think an underrated aspect too, while Dr. J is not an elite floor spacer, Dr. J could shoot a little bit too, and I think it gets lost because he was such a great well, finisher and such a great athlete attacking the paint. He could shoot from within I'm, 15 feet. I'm not calling. Yeah, I'm not calling him an elite jump shooter, but I think it gets lost. Like I think when people think of Dr. J, you just think of him gliding and flying through the air. But Dr. J could shoot a little bit too. Uh, it, it's it's harder to gauge, man, because, I mean, you're putting up 30 a night in the ABA. It's obviously not as impressive, but it's valuable. I definitely considered putting Dr. J into my top 15, Carson, but uh, the fact that he never got it done by himself solely, he wins it with a great team, and the fact that he doesn't have that complete offensive or defensive skill set. You know what I mean? He's not singularly propelling an offense to being the best in the league, and he's not singularly propelling a defense to be the best in the league. Everybody in my top 15, I think, can make that distinction, either leading you to being one of the best in basketball on either side. But I think Dr. J is kind of underrated a little bit, man. I, I honestly thought he might be higher on my list, but I don't think Dr. J gets gets enough of the love uh, that he should get, man. I, I love watching Dr. J. I also do think it's worth noting, when we talk about the 83 title, how far Dr. J was from his absolute peak mm -hmm, that for sure. year. Like we talked about with the greatest teams. 
Andrew Tony was the more productive scorer and playmaker more efficiently. And I think was just the second best offensive player in that playoff run. So Dr. J is still a bona fide star, maybe a top 10 player in the league, certainly not a, a top three player as he was. And so that's important in how much we value these titles. As I said, we're not just counting rings here. The context is super important. So I think at this point, we've basically revealed everything. 17, I have the big O. I've already done my whole spiel for that. And then 16, I have Nikola Jokic, who uh, I've already done my whole spiel on as well. So do you want to run down and recap our list real quick? Yeah, sure. Let's go from 25 to 16. Remind the people of how you're sitting right now. Okay, at 25, I had John Havlicek. At 24, I have Jason Kidd. 23, I have Giannis Antetokounmpo. 22, Kawhi Leonard. 21, Moses Malone. 20, Nikola Jokic. 19, Elgin Baylor. 18, Oscar Robertson. 17, Dirk Nowitzki. And at 16, Dr. J. Okay, I have 25, Dwayne Wade, 24, Carl Malone, 23, Charles Barkley, 22, Chris Paul, 21, Moses Malone, 20, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 19, Dirk Nowitzki, 18, Julius Irving, 17, Oscar Robertson, and 16, Nikola Jokic. So, the top 15 is going to be coming in hot. Very excited to get to that. It's interesting how much difference we've had so far, but our 16 to 20, we definitely had the same names pretty much, whereas 21 to 25, I think there was a, a bunch of different directions that you could go. And the 15, I would think, is solidified and is going to be the same for both of us. Different order, of course, but same names. So we're going to get back to that tomorrow and continue to stay tuned throughout this week for the top 10 and then the top five. This has been a ton of fun so far. If you guys have enjoyed it, you can continue to watch on the Volume YouTube page. You can listen to the show across audio platforms. And, of course, you can follow us on social media, TikTok and Instagram at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can buy some of our NerdSesh merch. You see we got the flags behind us. Logan is wearing the NerdSesh hat. We've got shirts. We've got hoodies. So check all of that out at thevolume.com or through the link tree in our bio across social media. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys. Hope you've enjoyed. I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host 
host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.